Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 145 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Sunil Desgupta, host of the I Hate Politics podcast, all about how politics impact gardening and vice versa. The plant profile is on PJM rhododendrons, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with the last word from Kim Stoddart, co-author of The Climate Change Garden, on building natural resilience in the garden. This episode, we're joined by Sunil Desgupta. He is the host of the I Hate Politics podcast, and we're going to talk about all things politics and rules and regulations that affect gardeners. Welcome, Sunil. Thank you. Or should that be Dr. Desgupta? Either is fine, really. Okay. So you have a whole other life outside of the podcast. So let's talk about that for a little bit, then a little bit about your podcast and then get into the nitty gritty of all the things gardeners should know um, when it comes to rules and regulations and what might impact them in the garden. Um, So let's talk about baby Sunil, all the way back to when you were born. Were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb or are you a gardener at all, Sunil? So, no, I was not born uh, with chlorophyll in my veins. Uh, I was born in the city of Calcutta, which is a teeming metropolis in India, on the eastern part of India. Um, I emigrated to the United States, um, came to the United States in 95, 96 to go to graduate school here. Um, I did garden a little bit when I was in graduate school in East Central Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And, but I really seriously started gardening when I lived in DC and we had a community, uh, a plot in a community garden uh, on Newark street. Um, that's when I really, really, uh, got into gardening. I garden, now we live in Rockville and I garden a little bit less. My wife does more of the gardening part, but I get to make the beds and things when that comes about about i we also have been running a uh, compost uh for I'm, i think i'm I, w- I would say about six years seven years now um and we put all our food scraps in there so we stopped using our garbage disposal nice and so for listeners outside the area the newark community garden in dc is is one that's well known it's a beautiful community garden And now you are north of the city in the uh, city of Rockville um, in Montgomery County, Maryland. And that is the county seat. That's right. Hmm. And what are you growing in that home garden now? So we grow, I mean, obviously tomatoes and, you know, kale and things like that. But we do uh, some potatoes. We will do some onions. Um, I love cilantro, but I... Uh, it's very difficult to grow, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I want more hot chilies, you know, the, those Thai peppers you get in 
grocery stores. Um, those are the two things I really, really want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't get enough of that. Uh, we also grow basil and oregano and, you know, herbs like that. What else? We have a fig tree. We have a massive fig tree in front of our house that produced like maybe thousand figs in the last couple of years. Ooh. And that's that's really bountiful. I love a bountiful fig tree. That's so wonderful. And you are so right about cilantro being difficult in our area to grow. It's one of my favorite herbs and it's kind of a shoulder season for us. Like spring or fall doesn't love our summers, but everything loves to chew on it. <laughs> so <laughs> it is very difficult when it bolts so quickly. But then of course you can use the, the seed once it's bolted um, as coriander, of course. So usually I'll end up with that. Right. Um, I also uh, did some, um, you know, cut some branches off and started new fig trees. And then uh, I ordered from Maryland uh, Department of Natural Resources last year um, some pawpaw trees. Um, Mm. And I planted, I bought like, I think, 25 or 30 and planted six in my house and gave the rest away to my neighbors. Wow, Um, six. Yeah. So I don't know if they'll survive. Um, I also got an etrog tree. I don't know if you know that. It's a little Middle Eastern lime lemon family. And, you know, we put that out for the first time prior to this winter, last winter. Um, And how do you spell that? E-T-R-O-G. Okay. So just like it sounds. Yeah. I think your pawpaws are going to do well. I highly recommend that our episode on growing pawpaws that we did, uh, one of our first episodes with Michael Judd. So you can check that one out and that's got some great tips, but they are a native plant here. They do very well. And planting six, if you have the room is great because they do need them to cross pollinate with each other. Yeah, that's what I heard. And so hopefully, fingers crossed, they survived the winter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they're pretty tough plants. And I think you're once they start fruiting, which will take about five years or so until they get to that point, uh, you're going to be giving away a lot of pawpaws, Sunil. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I predict. Um, so in your day job, let's talk about that for a minute and give people mm-hmm. a little bit of that background. I am a political science professor at UMBC. Um, I mostly uh, run the program for UMBC at the Universities of Shady Grove, which is a Montgomery County campus. That's been my job for the last 13 years, but largely I'm a political scientist. That's my life. Hmm. And so you started the podcast, and it's kind of locally oriented, and it's called I hate politics. So let's define why you named it that. Well, you know, I obviously don't hate politics. Um, you know, I teach <laughs> it. I, you know, for some folks might like to know that I even ran for local office, the school board in 2020. And the podcast is really born out of um, that loss in that election. I was, you know, after the after losing the election, I was you know, despondent, walking my dog. And somebody I knew who had a podcast called and said, why don't you start your own? And I thought, well, (laughs) the voters just spoke. I don't think anybody wants to hear me out. But over the next three months or so, um, I thought about it. And then my wife said, you know, you're constantly complaining about the fact that people hate politics. And, you know, that's how you feel. So why don't you channel that. There are 
you know, during that campaign, uh, lots of people will tell me, I don't want to talk to you. I hate politics or I don't want to contribute to your campaign because I hate politics. You know, as a political scientist, that's a very weird position for me to <laughs> see. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think most people, a lot of people, you know, take their you know favorite political uh, position, maybe education, say, right? So education policy is a moral policy or healthcare is a moral policy or, you know, uh, housing is a moral policy or perhaps for your listeners, gardening is a moral right, right? But all of these really exist within the context of politics. And by that, I mean that they exist because we have to make collective decisions, these are not individual decisions we make. This is not between God and I, right? It is, this is, these are decisions we make with our neighbors, with our friends, with those whom we disagree often, right? And so, and that process is what is politics. Politics is the domain to which everything you disagree about in other parts of your life, that's what we get. And therefore, politics looks dirty and disgusting or and you hate politics mm -hmm. but really it is by design the domain where disagreements go think about it i mean i don't like to use this metaphor but think about it like a sewer that catches all the disagreements and then we have methods in politics to address the disagreements that you bring us right mm -hmm. so we for example we hold elections. Elections are, are what? What do they do? Elections are designed to take the plurality of opinion preferences and give them 100% of power. So somebody gets 51% of the vote. They don't get 51% of the power. They get 100% of the power. So elections are a way of sorting out preferences, but also they are a way of magnifying preferences, right? And the, we say, it, you know, you have four years at it, and then we'll do it again. But that is the purpose of elections, that we allow society to move forward, even when we disagree. Hmm. I love that explanation, Sunil. And it does make you think that politics could be renamed conflict resolution, maybe, or group conflict re resolution. Well, I like to believe that conflict resolution should be renamed politics. <laughs> yeah, I like to, you know, there are lots of euphemisms <laughs> we use for politics, public service, for instance, right? When you do public service, there is a part of you that says, I am serving the public. Serving the public requires you to make a determination about what the public wants. That is a method of aggregating preferences. And when you're aggregating preferences, you're acting politically. So public service and politics to me are inseparable. We use leadership. We use civic engagement. You just use conflict resolutions. There is every euphemism that is that you can find will be used for it. You know who hates politics most of all? Hmm. Politicians. Mm. They'd like you to believe that they are only public servants. But how do you do public service if you speak on behalf of the public and you're aggregating preferences? You're not acting politically? Is how is your preference and your vision of what people want not 
a political choice. Mm-hmm. No matter what the choice is, by the way, it could be on the left, right, or middle. Exactly. And and those who say they're outsider or outside politics or they don't get involved in politics or they don't want to get their hands dirty, so to speak, they are at some level. You can't avoid it. No, first of all, you even if you hate politics and stay away from it, politics does not exempt you. You are involved. It's like saying, I, I don't like to breathe, so I'll stop breathing. Okay. So that's sort of the, the reality of the situation. I think most people that say they hate politics basically are arguing that their own political position should be above contestation, that nobody should contest their position. So they're making a claim to be above politics in order to reduce contestation against their particular preferences. So it is, in fact, a political statement to say, I hate politics. Hmm. And I think for a lot of us who are conflict averse, that might be the core of it. Well, a lot of us are conflict averse. Doesn't mean that there is no conflict in society because a person is conflict averse, right? They mean personally choose not to deal with conflict, but the conflict still exists, right? And so you have to do something about it. You can't pretend to walk away from it. Society would be stuck we would not make any progress on any issue if we believed that conflict avoidance solves the problem. I think that is so apt, Sunil. And if our listeners have stuck with us this long, <laughs> who want to hear about gardening, um, hopefully they are going to um, participate in their local politics. And we're going to talk about some ways that politics is mandating in some ways and in other ways shaping the way we garden locally here in the Mid-Atlantic and elsewhere. Um, but before we dive into that, we've you've alluded a couple times to your wife, and I do want to give her a shout out. And let's talk a little bit about what she's doing and introducing kids to nature. Right. So my wife, her name is Elana Mintz. She founded and runs a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called Urban Adventure Squad that is aimed at outdoor education, hands-on learning. And she works with many D.C. public and charter schools, um, as well as communities to bring outdoor education to children in Washington, D.C., particularly in wards where there is, there is not this kind of learning happening. Hmm. So important. And I think we're going to have to have her come on the podcast at some point as well. So let's say um, we'll put a pin in that one and then bring us to our topics of the conversation. And let's start off with um, talking about the competition for community garden spaces. Um, So I've been to several planning meetings in the area and parks and planning And I see all the people testify that we need more places for soccer fields. We need more places for pickleball and dog parks. And meanwhile, I'm there clutching my little paper and I'm there to testify for more community garden spaces because I know that there are long wait lists and there's a whole bunch of people who haven't even applied for a community garden space because they're told of those long wait lists so they don't even bother Sunil. 
Um, and what we need is flat, level, sunny land. And that's, of course, the same things that a soccer field need. Um, so let's start with that. Right. So as we urbanize, our own private spaces become smaller because land becomes more expensive, right? If we live in the suburbs and we have a big um, yard, then we can garden there. But if you live in places where, you know, your yard is small or not at all, say you live in an apartment building, then like I did, we needed to go to a community garden in Newark Street to be able to garden. So I think those two things go hand in hand, that the more you urbanize, the more you need to provide some community spaces where gardening can happen. Now, there is always going to be competition over the space. And, you know, it's not like sport is a bad thing or better than gardening. We have to find ways in which we share this space. And I think you will find that as we become a more and more an urban county, Montgomery County mm -hmm. does, right? You will see greater competition for space. There is, you know, infill development is going to, you know, increase. And so space is going to be short. But I want to ask you this. You know, we think of gardening only on flat spaces, what about vertical gardening? Can we do that? I know that several um, cities around the world, Taipei, for example, I, you know, I walked through this incredible garden through Tokyo one time, and it was long but narrow and right went right through the city. I think we are not thinking about space in imaginatively. Um, and I would imagine that as space becomes more in demand, you will find more vertical gardening and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can certainly think of more inventive places. And I would say one of the pressures is, like you're saying, urbanization, but also in our older, especially inside the Beltway neighborhoods here in D.C., um, the pressure on the um, price of land, obviously, but also that the infill, we want to have beautiful big trees and we have these hundred year old trees and that's precluding, you know, the type of guard, intensive food gardening that a lot of people want to do. Um, and that's personally why I have a garden plot is because I have almost full shade in my home garden. But I do agree that we can start thinking of more inventive places and maybe turn some parking lots, say, into community garden, maybe raised beds. Um, I know there's a few of those in Montgomery County that are being put in um, rather than in-ground plots is one idea. And even some of those parking garage rooftops where nobody wants to park, right, Sunil? Right. <laughs> Once you make it up to that sixth level, you're like, yeah, I'm going to go back down. Um, nobody wants to be on that exposed level for some reason, but that's a great place to put some raised beds in. Yeah, you know, also um, school properties. So I would urge gardeners to, you know, reach out to local schools in their neighborhoods and form garden clubs that include teachers and students and them. 
I think that way they get to train a new generation, mm-hmm. you know, have the space and, you know, bring the community together. Agreed. Yeah, I know some private schools who are doing a great job with that and some public schools in D.C. Um, it's always I, I see a fall off in the summer, which, of course, is your most productive season in volunteers or the teachers or people going out of town. So really need. Well, to that's what I mean. Right. So exactly. So if you have community involved in that garden, then at a time when there are no teachers or students in school, the community steps up and takes care of the garden. And I am 100% sure that if we built those partnerships with schools, they would be successful. Lots of people want to garden. It gives people peace and Mm -hmm. a sense of fulfillment to be able to grow things. Mm. And the only blowback I'm hearing from that uh, is... I hear liability issues, of course, the lawyers getting involved. And then um, you're attracting honeybees. That's the other argument I'm hearing from um, some PTA members and others who don't want gardening space at their schools. And what do we say to the Sunil? So, you know, the liability issue is, I think there's liability in everything that we do. I think that kind of is is a smokescreen for other things. It's really a smokescreen for not wanting to make the effort to make it happen, right? Mm-hmm. With honeybees, well, so first of all, the growing season is the summer when there are not students there. So honeybees are not, you know, I'm not sure what the big deal is. It's maybe during spring the honeybee is a problem, but we can teach kids about bees. Mm-hmm. And how to be around bees, how to deal with bees. It's, I mean, do we assume that all kids are allergic to bee stings? What happened to kids that grew up on farms where there would be bees? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need the bees to produce food. We can't like separate people from bees. The one yeah. way of saying to learn about life is to say learn about birds and bees. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, and and you're preaching to the choir, Sunil, because I just can't. Uh, it's such a crazy argument to me that I'm like, just being in life, you're going to encounter a bee. But yes, they're. It's like you're creating some bee magnet. They're saying, um, and that their child is going to get stung. And guess what? I ask if the child is allergic to bees. No, they're not. But you know, I don't want them stung. And I'm like, they'll live. You know, they will live. Yeah, I mean, this is the same thing as you know. We, um, there are several schools in Montgomery County and in Washington D.C. area that are you know within ten minutes walking from Rock Creek. You know, the idea of a field trip in public schools is to get buses and go to museums. The idea of a field trip in public schools is not take a walk 10 minutes to Rock Creek and walk in Rock Creek, which is such a treasure. So I think we have built schools to be fortresses, not Mm -hmm. community places. Mm. The you know, and, and of course, it's getting worse because of the shootings and all of that. But we do treat schools as if they're a separate entity from the communities in which they live. Mm-hmm. And that's such a tragedy because if the school is not a community's place, what is? 
Yeah, and the schools used to be that community meeting place, right? And right. that used to be that magnet. And so let's transition to our next topic, which is agricultural education or horticultural in schools. And I know you did a recent episode on your I Hate Politics podcast on this. And two topics on that that I think are germane to local gardeners is A, most of us probably didn't have any growing experience in our school background. And if we did, it was, you know, a one-off thing, maybe a science teacher introduced something and B, none of us considered it as a career because it was just never brought up. And in uh, affluent Montgomery County and other suburbs, similarly, I think there's a stigma about uh, agriculture as a career. What do you uh, think about that, Sunil? Well, so, Yes. I mean, yeah. So agriculture is a hard life. Farming is a hard life. Farmers don't themselves don't want their kids going into farming. There is no doubt about that. Right. So the you know, number of people in um, farming in the United States as a whole has dropped precipitously. Most of our farm labor is actually imported, um, you know, not domestic labor. So it is something to think about why we have made farming so difficult such that, you know, nobody wants to go in there, right? In Montgomery County, we have what is called the Agriculture Reserve, which is we've set about set aside about a third of our county in 1980, we did this, um, of our county land for agriculture alone where no development could occur. But if you go back now and look at, you know, what is grown there, you'd be surprised it's mostly industrial farming. The, you know, community-supported agriculture, the CSAs, where you buy the, you know, things that come on the farmer's market and things like that, right, is very, very limited. I did an episode on this as well. It's called The Fragile Economics of the Ag Reserve. Mm. Do you know that you can rent an acre of land in the Ag Reserve for less than $150 a year? At those prices, at that rent level, you can leave that land fallow. Really, it is not feasible to do agriculture in Montgomery County right now. And so that reflects, I think, in our education. We want our kids to, you know, go to college and become lawyers and, you know, technology entrepreneurs and um, doctors and things like that. And we don't think about um, agriculture education. Did you know that almost, I think, not almost, all our uh, high schools, there are 25 high schools in the county, all of them have a greenhouse. Hmm. But on, there is only one hort, truly horticulture program in the, of the 25 high schools, and that's Damascus High School. And that too, I think, is going to end when Miss Mayhew, who runs the program and has run it for decades now, when she retires in a few years. There are two other programs that are agriculture, sustainability, sort of broader programs, one at Sherwood and one at Northwood High Schools. But those, you know, it shows you that there is no demand for it. In my home school, in my home high school, uh, Rockville High School, there used to be a very strong horticulture program. Not anymore. Even Poolsville, that used to have much more agriculture, it does, it, it, it does, now they are focused on math and science. 
there are some of those greenhouses are used by science teachers to produce native plants for the Department of Environmental Protection in the county because uh, DEP um, plants these native plants for every in places. But largely, we don't have demand. People don't want to become farmers, which is really, really sad. We ought to have find a way to do this. And on to top of it all, you know, we talk a good game about career education, but we don't really support it. So Miss Mayhew, in order to buy seeds and fertilizer every year, must sell plants. So she is a self-generating, you know, fund-generating uh, machine. Hmm. So she does, you know, five to $7,000 of plants she sells every year. Hmm. So that's not coming from the school budget. That's no. from the program generating it itself. Yeah. So many of the career programs have to do that. That's just, you know, when a biology teacher buys frogs for dissection, the school pays for it. But seeds and fertilizer? Nope. Hmm. And we have interviewed... Uh, Ms. Mayhew in Washington Gardener magazine. I think she does wonderful work. And it's sad to hear that when she retires, that program might be going away. So that's one thing a home gardener could advocate for, right? With their local politicians or at a PTA meeting or to the school board for more funding and more programming. Yeah, but also I think the part that is really, really important is to build a model where community, teachers, and students come together in a garden that is on school property. That is the model that I think is sustainable over the long run. Hmm. And let's think about how we can craft that. And meanwhile, we'll jump to a new topic, um, which I think a lot of our listeners will relate to. And that is getting slapped with a uh, weed fine or notice uh, because you are growing native plants or something in your landscape that is in violation of your local HOA, your town, county, or state laws uh, that's not turf grass lawns. So the first thing to understand about politics, and it is political, even HOAs are political, is that there are so many rules that we cannot know. I like to say that we are a nation of laws, literally thousands of them, right? Jurisdiction by jurisdiction, these rules will vary. And just like in our normal lives, we don't get involved in getting to know laws or politics until something directly affects us. You know, we'll only respond to these kinds of things when we get a notice. Mm -hmm. The good news in Maryland is that it was, I think, in 2021 that the Maryland legislature passed a new law that said that folks living in HOAs do not need to follow HOA rules when it comes to turf grass. That they can have, they can grow native plants, butterfly gardens, if you will, rain gardens, and other low-impact vegetation. So no matter what your HOA says now, in Maryland, the state of Maryland allows you to grow almost what you want. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's very important. And this comes out of an experience 
of this, the Crouch family in Howard County, where they got this notice from the HOA that said, oh, you have to, you can't grow, uh, you can't do a butterfly garden. And she fought it, took it all the way to the courts and to the, um, the Maryland legislature and prevailed. So there are two things I would like to point out about that. One, that you can prevail. But second, it took years and years of perseverance. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I would say is you cannot prevail on the cheap. It does and it will take work. I think we, we recognize now that turf grass rules are completely anti-environment. So in Maryland, if you live in an HOA, grow what you want. Mm -hmm. And that includes food, native plants, a butterfly garden. And we've covered this case in the magazine, but she had help um, and some lawyers that were friends. So as you say, Sunil, it, it took one person to really persevere and to, you know, stick her foot in there and really pursue this case. Because a, a lot of people would have given up a long time before that. Yeah, I think the the last thing I want to point out about that case is that it is also about coalition building, right? So, you know, she did have support from friends, from lawyers, and you have to build that coalition. That coalition will not get automatically built somehow. It doesn't exist in nature. So when we have a political project, we have to organize around it. And that is the hard task. So true. And Sunil, I think that's the easy part. <laughs> I think um, finding the people who have similar views and who want to, they're just waiting for somebody to say, hey, let's get a group together. Let's fight this because there's so many individuals living at home um, or in an HOA or in a condo or something that are waiting for this to happen and just waiting for that leader to pop up for them. Well, yes. But also, it actually is a numbers game. Politics is a numbers game. If you gather enough people behind you, you are going to prevail. I mean, I can put it more simply. Mm. If you gather enough people that support Native Gardens in your HOA, you know what you can do? You can change the HOA rule itself. You know what mm. you can do? You can get on the HOA to change those rules. Exactly. Yeah, I always recommend people get themselves elected or appointed, and many of those positions go empty, right, Sunil? They're right. you know because just like you say in your podcast name, I hate politics. I don't want to serve on my HOA or condo board or anything like that. Who wants to waste my time doing that? But you are in the power position at that point. Well, if you think it's a waste of time, you won't do it, right? And most people only get around to doing it when something adverse happens to them, right? By that time, it's too late. By that time, you've given the position to somebody else who has, in fact, acted adversely <laughs> against you. So, I mean, there has to be some kind of preparatory early work where it's a, no, look, I'm going to remain involved in this, in our mm -hmm. collective enterprise. We like to close our front doors. We like to close... Uh, our car doors. We like to, you know, we went from being a porch society to being a patio society. I think it's, I'm not the first guy to say this, but this has been said 
you know, famously 50, 60 years ago, right? So we used to be a porch society. People used to say howdy when they walked down the street. But now we all want big patios and the porches have disappeared. Mm. So we have become much more private rather than participating in society. And not participating in your HOA is an example of that privacy, right? The HOA itself, by the way, is an <laughs> an instrument to ex- of exclusion, right? You want to inc- you know, have some people in it hmm. so that those that are not in it are not there. So I understand, I get what, what the sort of the purpose is, but then if you take that too far, then obviously if you hate politics, politics is going to hate you back and mm. it's going to leave you behind. So true. And I would say, so get involved, get to know your neighbors, you know, attend the meetings before you, you know, decide to run. That's a, a really good idea and get to know some of those leaders. Right. Uh, you know, this sort of the issue about uh, weed notice and all of that. So a weed, very, very typically, HOAs or the county or the city, they cannot enforce the many, 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 many rules that are on the books. This just doesn't happen. Even with the Crouch family in Howard County, they had had a garden prior to them getting a notice, had had a garden, uh, a, a butterfly garden for a bunch of years before they were, they, were, they, were, they were given the notice. So they did have a garden in place. It's already a fact, right? So, and obviously that means that the HOA rules were not being, were not being enforced for a period of time. Most, many, many rules like this about weeds, about what you're growing, about maybe fences even, they are enforced when somebody reports you. Mm-hmm. That is how they are enforced. So in, so if you have good relationships with your neighbors, if you know them, if you have a garden and, they, and their kids are allowed to pick from your garden, right? Then chances are that they are not likely to report you. So you can get away with a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying break the law. Some of these laws are stupid, right? So, you know, it's the, um, you know, we we did an episode on uh, should we have right-of-way gardens? Should we allow gardens in the uh, county right-of-way? In some cases, it makes sense. Nobody goes there. It's just land that is in front of your house. What do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Why don't you grow tomatoes? And why can't the neighborhood kids eat those tomatoes? Mm-hmm. And we're talking here about the hill strip, as we call it, the between the sidewalk and the street, which in our county, they used to mow. And then one day they just stopped mowing. Um, so then it fell to the local homeowner to mow it and maintain it. And and frankly, Sunil, I planted it up with native plants and bulbs, spring, you know, spring flowering bulbs, because I'm not going to mow that strip. That's right. And so the county has odd rules about it. I mean, you can grow things that are, you know, not more than 18 inches, but you can have trees also. <laughs> I mean, I, either you have, you can grow things that are 18 inches or you can grow trees. I mean, you can't both get, get both, you know, mm-hmm. because there's supposed to be visibility concerns, but you are allowing trees. So how is there a visibility concern if you're allowing trees? 
I think a lot of this is just laws that are made because somebody gets involved in it. And then, you know, the time evolves. I mean, things evolve and we and these old laws remain. So that's why there are so many laws that should not be there. There are laws that, you know, uh, will only be applied when uh, a neighbor or somebody that is looking is is reporting on you. And if yeah. you have a better relationship with them, if you get to know your neighbors, then garden that right away. Yep. Yeah, so true, Sunil, that it, they are responsive to complaints. Nobody is driving up and down the streets looking for enforcement. They don't have time for that. They don't have staff for that. So they are complaint-driven and know that if you get a notice like that, that means somebody um, turned you in, so to speak. So I mean, have you yeah. been to, have you seen all the ornamental mailboxes that are mm-hmm. across the county? Almost all of them are illegal because almost all of them are in the right of way, mm-hmm. in the county right away, right? But they are there. Mm-hmm. All the neighbors have it. So nobody reports that. Yep. And so let's move to, uh, we mentioned fences pretty quickly um but of course there's a couple issues around fences number one uh most jurisdictions not just montgomery county limit your fence height to six feet and when you have serious deer predation and population in the area eight feet is going to be your minimum that you need to keep deer out so that's one issue and then your other issue is your neighbor and fencing between them and what you can do that way. So there is fencing and fencing, right? So there is fencing at your property line, but you can have fencing that is inside your property line around your uh, um, garden bed. That's a different level of fencing. You could have fencing that prevents deer that does not necessarily wood and opaque, right? You could have higher fencing if you, you could you could have a you could have fence at your property line, and you could have a deer fence for the bed. That's mm. different, and you can have a wire mesh deer um, fence that you can look through. Exactly. So, and that could be higher than six feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the solid fencing that's at the property line that's the six feet limit. That's so, right, but you exactly. you you shouldn't be limited by that. Mm-hmm. So we can think about fencing um, just the vegetable garden, say, or just a section of your yard, yeah. or using the deer fencing, the, the mesh one, as you describe. Um, and that, because it's see-through, that can go higher and that can go back. So, And of course, then you have your HOA regulations if you live under an HOA. But that's usually most county and state ordinances. If you're in a suburban or urban area, six feet is the limit. Yeah, and talk to your neighbor, mm-hmm. right? So if you talk to your neighbor and explain to them what, you know, that you have a deer problem and this is a problem, if it's six and a half or seven feet, I don't think the neighbor cares. So long as, you know, you have a deliberative, you know, sort of agreed thing like, yeah, hey, you know, have what are you doing about your, um, about the deer problem? Oh, I don't even have any garden. Yeah, we have a garden and we're trying to grow things and the deer keep come getting it. I think I'm going to put up a fence, right? Mm-hmm. And then you mm-hmm. put up a fence and, you know, it's seven feet. So what? I mean, mm-hmm. the neighbors, neighbor knows what you're doing. Yep. And speaking of neighbors, let's jump to our next topic, which is, um, 
if your neighbor is doing something like spraying chemicals um, or they have an invasive plant like bamboo coming over from their side into your side, um, how would you deal with that, Sunil? Would you call the police first? <laughs> well, I'm not sure the police are going to help. This kind of enforcement is very hard to do. Um, so actually, I have a neighbor with bamboo. We have a wooden fence in between. And I maniacally cut the bamboo shoots that come up on my side because I don't want them. You know, but I don't know if there is a really effective way of policing them. I think, you know, if you find that um, your neighbor is using um, chemical fertilizers that hurt um, the environment, um, I think... You know, a slow education of the neighbor is a very good idea. Um, you can, you know, do some testing and show them that, you know, this is where the water goes from your runoff. But I can imagine it's not easy. It's, it's, it takes a lot of work and it takes trust between neighbors for you to have that kind of conversation to be, to, to, to basically, you know, change the way. In fact, you know, sometimes things can go sour because you started to have this conversation. So you have to be careful. But I do really think that if, you know, if you have a neighbor that is spraying um, chemical pesticides that are not allowed, mm-hmm. right, then you also have neighbors who recognize that that is wrong. So again, I would say get with your other neighbors to start to build some kind of community um, norm, expectation, right, about how to do things. And, you know, you're not going to win every battle. Mm. But I think most people are reasonable. And if you, if you work on them slowly and build their trust, I think, you know, it is possible. Mm. So build good relations with neighbors, have patience, and pick your battles. <laughs> I think I think that goes for everything in life, really. That's very true. Um, so speaking of picking your battles, um, in Montgomery County, uh, we have a beautiful treasure in Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, wonderful public garden, and many other jurisdictions have gorgeous public gardens that are county-funded or uh, locally run, like Green Spring Gardens in Fairfax County, Virginia is another great example locally. And they are always um, coming up short budget-wise for what they would like to do. And of course, they both have friends groups that are fundraising for them but what can we do locally to drive more funds from the budget uh, to these public gardens and to garden type amenities? Well, I, I would say this to any group of people that has some common interest, otherwise called interest group, (laughs) um, organize, get enough people together, you know, get some t-shirts printed, wear them together and go to county council and say, this is what we want. Mm. And if there are large numbers of you, you will get what you want. And I'm going to stop you there, Sunil. When you say large numbers, I had heard in the past from another civic activist that if you can get 20 people 
to call in or write a letter or write an email, that is considered a huge wave. That is true. I would strive for a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more if you can. But I was shocked that as little as 20 people can get something done or passed. Well, that is the sad state of local politics, right? So the problem with local politics is that we know so little about it. We know more about the White House than we know about Congress. We know more about Congress than we know about state politics. We know more about state politics than we know about county politics. We know more about county politics than we know about our HOA, PTAs, or other sort of local community organizations. By the time we're at our neighborhoods, we really are only dependent on gossip on Facebook or Nextdoor. So, you know, we don't, people don't like to participate. There's a whole at the foundation of our democracy. And we get this really odd outcomes, you know, of 20 people being able to, um, you know, turn the tide. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, um, this is the entire problem with the primary elections, right? So what is the, how many people vote in the primary elections in Montgomery County? You know, maybe 30%. If you take the... Uh, if you take the number of people off the entire uh, all voting uh, folks, um, voting age people, you know, the, that percentage is as low as 20%. So 20% of the people get to choose who our political leaders are, right? Our, the general elections are not that important because the Republican Party is decimated in Montgomery County. So, but only 20% of the people participate in the primary and that's who gets to pick the leaders. So it is a larger problem of participation at the local level that we have to kind of think about very, very seriously. And that's partly why I think I'm doing that podcast as well, Mm -hmm. you know, to reach out to people that do not participate and show that if you don't, you know, we all pay a cost. Mm -hmm. And just paying attention can go a long way, Sunil. I think I actually like the discussions on Nextdoor and neighborhood lists and discussion groups and Facebook groups uh, because it feels like more people are getting involved at those levels. Well, I will say two things about that. So first of all, they are useful starting points, but you can't end there because a lot of that information is really badly shared in a sense that some of the information may not be true. Um, there are uh, folks that have vested interests that are pushing certain kinds of information over others. There is, you know, some people become information brokers within a community, mm-hmm. right? And then they hold sort of convening power or uh, kind of uh, political power. But we don't think about all this as politics. So therefore, right? It's, it's, it's something that we don't need to get involved in. And that's, I think, the large message that I would send is that what they are doing is, in fact, political. What happens in an HOA is politics. What happens in a PTA, how it is organized is politics. Whether there is a community garden in a school is politics. Hmm. So much food for thought. But let's wrap up um, our politics and gardening um, with a little maybe about 
gas-powered leaf blowers and other nuisance laws um, like that and how a local gardener could maybe get some of those changed? Well, so I think D.C. already has a ban on gas-powered leaf blowers. Mm -hmm. Montgomery County has a semi-ban. That is to say, we can't buy uh, gas-powered leaf blowers anymore, but um, landscape businesses can continue to use them. I think enforcement of that kind of law is hard to do. Education is what we, you know, what we need. If you are environmentally minded, you know, you can put out um, just a small, um, you know, uh, leaflet or something and put it on your neighborhood um, lamppost about, you know, the uh, new law uh, that says you should not use gas-powered leaf blowers. Mm-hmm. I think overall, I mean, leaf blowing, <laughs> I see, you know, some people use it. Uh, some people need it because there's a lot of foliage um, that falls. But I, ha- you know, have stopped sending any um, natural waste to um, the county. I don't, I have not for maybe five years sent any mm-hmm. leaves um for county collection. So I take a lot of it, put them on a tarp, drag them back to the back of my yard and just mulch them right there. And when I, with my, what I do then is I use that, uh, those leaves that are mulching and I add them to my compost as I add more food so that, you know, uh, the um, food waste remains covered. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that is the ideal way if you have the space and the resources to do it. Right. You know, some people with tiny yards and large trees, they're going to be inundated by leaves and need to send out some of those, bag them up in the brown bags or with their yardscape waste that's picked up. So, And then bring them back in as leaf grow or leaf mulch, which is great. Um, and part right, of Right, but if you have them in bags, why do you need to send them anywhere? Just, you know, stack mm-hmm. them. Just stack them, exactly. Yeah, just stack them uh, right there. And, you know, it'll mulch over time. It'll take three years. Mm-hmm. But you have mulch right there. Why, why are you spending money, you know, and, and sort of um, using uh, gasoline or diesel, right, to send yeah. something away only to bring it back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, it could be a, a space issue for some people. But for most of us, we could afford, you know, a small area of that. So wrapping up Sunil, um, let's talk about how the home gardener um, in general is affected by politics and a few last words on that. Well, the home gardener is affected by politics just like everybody else, right? It's, you know, we have to deal with so much about land use. We have to deal with you know, where we are growing, uh, we have to deal with climate change. I mean, that's a huge, big part of our politics. But our what we grow is going to change. When we start growing, it's already changed. Mm-hmm. Right? So we are starting early, if you if you can see, even from maybe, like maybe five years ago. Right? You're already putting things, you know, the early uh, salary, um, the lettuce and the uh, and the kales in earlier mm-hmm. so the you know i would 
I would not distinguish home gardeners in this respect with the general population. And almost everybody that lives in especially suburban Maryland, right, is something of a home gardener. Some, All of them, all of us, are growing something, even if it's basil. So I think, you know, we are the we are the people. Hmm. That's so true. And we are all gardeners on some level. And we are all involved in politics, zoning, policy, um, creation at some level as well. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Neil. This has been fascinating. And how can our listeners listen to your podcast and get in touch with you if they want to discuss more? You can uh, listen to I. I hate politics at ihbpod.org. That's the website. As well as on your favorite uh, podcasting platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or Pandora, uh, Audible, you know, just all of them. You can reach me by emailing ihbpod at gmail.com and on Twitter at IHB pod or Facebook to at IHB pod. Terrific. Thank you so much, Sunil. Thank you. PJM rhododendron plant profile. PJM rhododendron is an evergreen shrub with bold flowers early in the spring season. It will also flower again in the autumn, though not as prolifically as the spring flush. The clusters of flowers are in shades of pink and purple. It grows to a large mound that is about five to six feet high and wide. It is hardy to USDA zones four through eight. In the wintertime, the PJM's foliage turns purple bronze, which curls up into a tight cylinder during periods of freezing temperatures. Its namesake is Peter John Mezit, a Latvian immigrant who settled in Boston and opened the Weston Nursery there in 1923. PJM is a cross between the very hardy Rhododendron Doricum variety Sempervirens from the Mongolian borderlands and the U.S. native Rhododendron Carolinium. PJM is one of the easiest and hardiest of the rhododendrons to grow in our region as it is both heat and cold tolerant. It likes filtered shade or morning sun and acidic soils amended with lots of organic material such as leaf mold and pine bark. It is sterile and does not set seed. It can be propagated by layering or cuttings. PJM rhododendron, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, thanks to a mini heat wave followed by a huge thunderstorm, things are popping open into early bloom, including my old-fashioned lilacs and azaleas. I have lots of tulips blooming at the same time as my daffodils and grape hyacinths, so it's a riot of color out there. Over at the community garden plot, we have seedlings up 
for our arugula, our lettuce, our Swiss chard, daikon radish, carrots as well, and even my thornless blackberry is starting to bloom. In the local gardening world, some local garden events you might want to attend include going out to view some native Virginia bluebells in large numbers at local parks and public gardens and you can read about that on the april 4th post to our blog washingtongardener.blogspot.com we list several local locations in the dc maryland virginia region to go out and view native virginia bluebells as they unfurl all across the mid-atlantic they are just gorgeous and some events to consider coming up include the Potomac Rose Society's National Gallery of Art private tour of roses and the paintings of the masters. That is on Sunday, April 16th at the National Gallery of Art in the East Building. You can find out more details and sign up for that at potomacrose.org. The, fr- the program is free and open to the public. And then the next day at Brookside Gardens, the Silver Spring Garden Club is hosting a talk on greener grasses, smart choices for better landscapes. And the speaker that evening is Shannon Curry, who is a past guest on the Garden DC podcast. And the date for that is Monday, April 17th at 7.30 p.m. Again, at Brookside Gardens Visitor Center in Wheaton, Maryland. That is free and open to all as well. And you can find out more about that at silverspringgardenclub.com or their website or uh, Facebook page. And then Tudor Place is hosting a class on Seeking Champion Trees, Saturday, April 29th from 11 a.m. to 12 noon. And you can go to tutorplace.org to find out more about that. And that is learning about the heritage trees at Tudor Place and discover if there are any champions of their species there. And it's best uh, enjoyed by those 12 and older. And a final event coming up that I'd love to see you at is the Leesburg Flower and Garden Fest on April 15th and 16th, Saturday and Sunday. I will have a booth there under the Washington Gardener Magazine banner, and we will be back in the Lightfoot lot, booth number one, and just off the main strip there. And you can see me there for signing up for the magazine, purchasing back issues, and or buying uh, the Urban Garden or Ground Cover Revolution and having me sign copies of that. If you have purchased copies of the book elsewhere and would like to have me sign it, I am happy to do so as well. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. 
There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spate, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is the last word from me, Kim Stoddart, an award-winning UK journalist, editor, and co-author of the newly published The Climate Change Garden Book by Corte. I've been writing about climate change for publications like The Guardian since 2013, and I feel very, very passionate about helping gardeners to cope with the greater extremes of weather we are now facing through climate change, through our warming climate. Before I share my top five tips for boosting resilience, I'd like to offer some words of hope that there are easy, cost-effective and enjoyable ways to help you shore up the defences, to save money and to make your gardening more enjoyable in the process. We are living through such incredibly stressful times and gardening is a positive action in the face of climate change and anxiety over the future. We now have climate change anxiety as an actual coin term, especially vegetable gardening, as you can save plastic, you can save money and you can feel good by growing luscious food to bring to your table. So here are my top five tips to help you build some greater resilience naturally. Number one, no-till methods can help carbon capture and build soil health, which also helps massively when it comes to boosting your soil's ability to hold and retain water. This is good during heavy rain, drought, and indeed all year round. Number two, organic growing without the use of chemicals or pesticides will save money on products and enable you to work more closely with the natural world overall. In a biodiverse eat and be eaten garden, it is much harder for one type of pest to cause issues. Greater risk of pest and disease is one of the main threats of climate change, so nurturing a wider range of plants allowing some areas to grow a little wild to create attractive habitats for predators is absolutely key and enjoyable as well. To give you an example, one ladybird larvae can hoover up thousands of aphids, so you really want to have lots of these fantastic natural helpers on hand. Number three, 
Saving some of your own seed is an incredibly easy thing to do for a lot of flowers, for a lot of crops, and you can choose to save from the plants that have displayed the best resilience against climate extremes. So for example, the salad leaf that didn't bolt so quickly during a heat wave, or the pea that was the most productive, save seed from these and save money in the process, and it feels incredibly good. Number four, go peat free and make your own compost and mulches. Compost can be expensive and there are massive issues with peat. In the UK, its use in horticulture for gardeners is being banned in 2024 and these natural habitats are complete wildlife havens and store a huge amount of carbon. So to help and save money in the process, why not make your own compost? Mulches can also be made from grass clippings, wood chip and leaf mould and the like and used to improve soil. A very thin sprinkling will, for example, help to keep water in the ground during a heat wave, saving time and effort for you, the gardener. Number five, try mixed or free planting, as I like to call it. It's also known as polyculture in permaculture circles. This system of leaving space about a metre or so between plants of the same family will help massively with natural pest control. You can still plant in lines, just with other plants mixed in and create your own patterns. It gives picking food a foraging edge that is fun, it boosts wildlife and it makes it much harder for pests to find what they're looking for. It looks great and it's such a fantastic thing to do. To see how it looks, you might want to have a look at my Instagram account, which is Kim underscore Stoddart. There's also lots of images in the book as well to bring that subject alive. But finally, don't forget to spend some time enjoying your garden. Put away the exacting to-do lists and just look, tune in, feel and enjoy. Because building resilience in the gardener is as important as the garden. We are all in this together and the natural world can help you feel good as well as lending a helping hand. This has been the last word from me, award-winning environmental journalist and co-author of the Climate Change Garden book, Kim Stoddart. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.